Welcome to Bell Curve with Mary Scott, Rachel, and Liz, three friends, three Southern Bells, joining you, smart women, to discuss life, work, relationships, business, everything from the nerdy to the normal, the practical to the philosophical, the head to the heart. Thanks for joining us as we observe, analyze, and often deviate from the standard. Hello, wonderful Bell Curve community. Can we just stop for a minute and say how grateful we are for you? We have had some of the nicest words said this week about this little effort of ours, and I think sometimes we just sort of pinch ourselves and can't believe we get to do this with each other and that y'all are out there listening and liking it. So thank you. We could not do this without you. So do y'all remember a few episodes ago when we talked about superheroes? I sort of geeked out about Wolverine and Mary Scott and Liz. I think y'all, you like, what, Captain America? Is that right? Oh, yeah. I liked all the dark ones. <laughs> well, in that episode, we talked about real life heroes that we admire as well. And our interview guest today is the person that I actually had in my mind when I described my real life heroes. Those are people who I feel like have the courage of their conviction and are living life with intention and making choices that require a lot of sacrifice and really whose lives produce I think a lot of fruit and joy. And so the person I had pictured in my mind is our guest, Rachel Medifend. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. And we call her Rachie. So in this podcast, especially since my name is Rachel too, we're going to call her Rachie. But Rachie is just a dear friend of mine. She's really a true kindred spirit. She's the mother of five beautiful children, one of whom she adopted. She's been a foster parent and has been homeschooling for really quite, quite a while, Rachie. When, when, was, when did you first start? When my oldest was coming out of kindergarten, so that was a while ago. She's 15 now, but we haven't done every year homeschooling. However, we've done, I would say, most of them. And she is married to Jed Medifend, who was working in the White House when Rachie and I first met and has been the president and CEO of the Christian Alliance for Orphans for quite a while. And both Rachie and Jed have done just tremendous things in the orphan and foster care world. Also, here's something that I'm terribly jealous of. I will just go ahead and admit that. Rachie is studying for her master's degree in neuroscience. And when we talk, <laughs> I feel like I'm always kind of like asking can you just toss me a little crumb, a little nugget of some fascinating thing that you've learned? But um, more than any of the very impressive things that Rachie has done and is doing, I have been dreaming of having her on the podcast because part of our purpose on this show is to foster friendship and connection and model that. And I met Rachie really during what I consider the hardest time in my life. And she was a true friend to me. And I always just felt like God sent her to be my friend just as such a special gift. And I don't think my insufficient words will ever be able to do justice to just how much she meant to me during that time, about 14 to 15 years ago. We joined a mother's Bible study together in D.C., and I was just immediately so drawn to this smart, stylish, confident, fun, wise, wise woman with critical thinking prowess and just a firm resolve to live life well and with intention. And we've been really close ever since. Some of the best conversations I've ever had have just been talking with Rachie about issues and ideas. So today, I'm really beside myself to get to ask you some questions. And I'd really just like to dive in, Rachie. First, I'd really love if you could tell us about your unconventional life as a missionary kid and how it shaped your view of American culture. Absolutely. But I have to just say, first of all, um, that is a very generous introduction. And I'm actually quite a normal, normal person. And Rachel has just been a dear, dear friend to me as well. And it's one of those friendships that endure despite mostly, I mean, most of our friendship, we've, we've really not lived anywhere near each other. 
but that kind of internal knowledge that there's um, a kindred spirit there, wherever, whatever part of the world we're living in, has been one of the great gifts in life. So, so I, I was, um, I grew up in the Philippines, and uh, that was from the time I was five years old until I was eighteen. So it really was the majority of my childhood. I hardly remember anything before that. And um, my my dad was a church planter, and he started with a small little Bible study in in Metro Manila, very very densely crowded, populous, polluted city. And it was a lovely place to live. And we basically were a, a church family. And I grew up in that context. And it was very dear and precious to me, as I think, especially as time has gone on. And I reflect back on my childhood and I see how formative it was for me. And so I just really value that growing up experience. How did it shape? I mean, when you came back to the States, you moved back to California. It, as an 18-year-old, that had to shape how you felt about American culture to go from Manila to California. Yes. Yeah, it certainly did. I, I just felt like there were so many things that I just adored about Filipino culture. And in some ways, it gave me a, a vantage point um, upon American culture. Some of it accurate, certainly some of it inaccurate. But I would say overall, as a teen, I really just felt like a lot of aspects, particularly of teen culture, I just um, fundamentally uh, didn't have any desire for. And so it, I think it helped steer me in the right direction and helped me find kindred spirits and helped grow me up in the right ways. And so I actually felt like I adjusted just fine back. And I know a lot of missionary kids can, sometimes it can be a hard journey re-entering their native context but uh, for me, it was actually really, of course, there were challenges, certainly, but it was a really, really good experience. Thinking about where you live now, you're up in the D.C. area, and you have an opportunity to live, I think, it sounds like from all of our conversations, really with great intention. I'd love if you just described for us, I mean, as a homeschooling mom and everything that you and Jed are involved with, what your life looks like right now. Sure. Yeah, we love our lives right now. It's an interesting setup that we have because actually we have a lot of flexibility by but we're homeschooling and my husband can kind of work from anywhere. So our kids are old enough that working from home really works for him. And so uh, right behind me, I actually have his standing desk that he just set up and he <laughs> uses. Um, and we share a little office and we I homeschool the kids upstairs. And I feel like it's just been the sweetest season of kind of having our lives more integrated together. And I, I know that for maybe many of your listeners, that could sound just horrid. <laughs> but I and I think I've, I would say there may have been times in life where I would have thought the same thing. But um, perhaps just the ages the kids are. And I don't know, it's just it's just felt really sweet. So and we've just really enjoyed where Jed and I are big history fans. And we've enjoyed just taking the kids around. And last year was all American history. And we literally like scoured. Well, I can't say that you can never scour DC, but just the museums, the monuments and the regional. Uh, I mean, we just went to Gettysburg this last weekend and spent the whole day there. So um, it's just been fun to, to live that kind of life for this season. We don't know how long it'll last, but it's been sweet. Right, Chi, I was just thinking about your what you said about that. And I, I think most everyone has read Swiss Family Robinson. And I think there's a reason people love that book. They kind of long for that 
apart experience. And yes, you're right. It doesn't last forever. And nobody would want to live on an island forever in real life. But it sort of sounds like you're having that time of your life when it's just, you're very much a family and you're kind of having a a Swiss family Robinson time in your life. And I, I think that sounds wonderful. I would say we've had two times in our life in particular where that's been the case. And the first couple months when we moved here, it absolutely was. And I knew it wouldn't last because we just kind of jump right in and get really um, involved. I'd say particularly in our church, but welcoming people into our home. And actually, that's a huge part of how we spend our time. But there, I totally agree with you. There's something so precious about little stretches that allow you to sort of step away and just enjoy one another and have a smaller experience together. And you lived, I mean, the one that comes to my mind, of course, is when you just up and moved to El Salvador. I mean, that does, you know, with all of your children. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So my youngest was two at the time, which is funny because I look back on that now. I'm like, what? She was two? (laughs) And um, I guess our oldest was in fifth grade. And we had had the kids, a couple of the kids in public school the prior year. And I just started to get antsy to, 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 to try something, have an adventure together. And I think for myself in particular, it stemmed from my own childhood and just wanting the kids to have an experience like myself outside of the U.S. context. I really had never imagined growing my kids up in the U.S. I, I don't know what I imagined as a child, but it wasn't in the U.S. And so in some ways I feel very awkward as an American parent. And I just felt like I benefited so much from growing up overseas and from um, being able to come to love a culture that's not uh, entirely your own. And I wanted a little bit of that for them. And so we moved to El Salvador. We spent three months there and then we couldn't help ourselves and went to Guatemala next door for another three months. And it was just fabulous. We'd honestly thought that it should only, we should only do something like that if it were at least like a two-year experience. Like, I think that's how long you were in Italy, right, Rachel? About. Yeah. And I, I think we thought that would be the minimum for a good immersion experience. But I will say, even now, I think now I, I feel like even if you can go for a few weeks somewhere as a family, I tell people it's just, it can be so significant, so life-shaping And yeah, you're kind of tourists in a way, but also if you can just settle down and just enjoy one place a little bit and get to know people who live right there, it can be so meaningful. And I think for my kids in particular, it was a chance for them to come to be unafraid and to love a new place and a new people and have an affection for it and a familiarity with it. And that was actually my core desire. I want to go back for a minute. You you were talking about being so busy. And I know some of our best conversations have been about American culture and about uh, how and you know how we get in this rat race of parenting and all the scheduled activities and running hither and thither and being in the, you know, the car all night long as you drive your kids to the activities. I really want an update on your thoughts and are y'all doing organized sports? Because I know for a while you haven't. And what what do you think now? <laughs> Oh, I was hoping you wouldn't ask me that. (laughs) (laughs) I had to ask. (laughs) Well, okay, again, I'll reference my childhood. I I just didn't grow up with um, those things actually being available. And um, I feel like it turned out okay. And I, I guess I feel like there's so many things in life that um, our family wants to pour into. And it does make it difficult to do sports. Now, my son is going to do basketball 
in probably starting soon. And then my, my kids, it's, I don't know if it's an organized sport. I'm organizing it myself, but they, we run. <laughs> is that organized? Is it definitely is it organized? Like, right, left, organized. Who's running. If I'm running, it doesn't look very organized. I'll tell you that. <laughs> I know. I took Liz running. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm a runner, so I love running. So I take my kids running, and then we do 5Ks. And I, I guess what I love about that is it's simple. It's not on anyone else's schedule, and we can do it together. Now, that's what we're doing right now. Um, and I think that I, I'm not opposed, and certainly my, my husband grew up doing – I mean, he played college basketball. He, he just was devoted to basketball. But um, I think we're just we're just very aware of the tension that um, organized sports brings to life in that it asks so much of a family. And I think I guess I just feel like American culture in American culture, generally speaking, there's a lot of lack of reflection upon life itself. Like so you just kind of go where the rails have been already laid by culture. And so you just do it instead of saying, well, who are we uniquely and what do we prioritize most? And if this matters most, what what all the things that come second, third, fourth, and fifth uh, are actually stay in that order. And so we might have times where we get to do these things, but um, we may not. And that's we're like going to be okay with that. But I will say it's been a, it's been a bit of a tension. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> It's a tension for me as I sit in my car every night. <laughs> it was a tension last night when I was in the concession stand at May Jemison High School football game, you know, being the team mom for the Jemison golf team. So it was definitely <laughs> feeling, I was feeling very dense. <laughs> I had a good time though. Well, well, and, you know, I'll just say one more thing on that uh, too. It's that I, I think one core tension for us is that, we really do love and identify as a family bring, welcoming people into our home. And so um, often we'll have folks come over, um, you know, two or three evenings a week. Well, that becomes undoable. Like you just can't sustain that if you're also having several children with five kids. So several children in sports. And I think that's kind of where the rub has been. And um, I, I think, it's been sweet in a way to make those calls together as a family and, and choose what we're choosing at the moment. But, um, but I would say that's how it's um, panned out in our family. So I am, I'm almost 30 and, I, and my husband and I don't have kids yet. But one of the, I think, things that has been wonderful for us waiting so long to have kids is being able to see how other people shape their families and make those intentional decisions like you're talking about. And that's a conversation he and I have had so much is, is you know, we both grew up playing sports and we see our friends with kids and our family members with kids who are doing that hither and thither thing, like Rachel, you were talking about, and it stresses me out just thinking about it. <laughs> so just seeing another family that has has made the choice not to do that is actually pretty encouraging because you, you almost think, you know, you see everybody doing something. So you think that's what, what people do. And that, that's just the expectation of you're just going to have this season of your life where you're a taxi cab and just knowing that, Hey, you can opt out of that for other priorities. I mean, that's empowering to me. 
I'll say one last thing on that too, because unfortunately I've had to think about it a lot. One way that we've tried to think about it is we want our kids to be physically active and healthy, very much so strong and and, um, able to like push hard and challenge themselves because I feel like that's something very important for life. And simultaneously, I want them to be able to have, uh, I guess, if we're talking about skills, skills that they can use in adulthood. And so many sports, it sort of, I guess, yeah, so so many, so often, uh, they just don't, you don't end up using them later on. And so um, we're, we think about things like running, biking, um, maybe swimming, that, that could uh, be something you could sustain over a lifetime. Rachie, do you think it's not just sports, though? I'm thinking of like, academic team and music lessons and chess club and um, even church activities and just the list goes on and on. I, I'm because we love sports. We play sports. I wouldn't want to not do sports in our house, but I think it's really more than sports, isn't it? It's like all the things that you could do that you have to be intentional about choosing your path on. Absolutely. I totally agree with you. And I think it has to be done prayerfully. And I also think that um, most families do overextend themselves. It's a constant struggle. Um, but it's the American way. <laughs> it really is. And there's something so beautiful and lovely about deciding to not be constantly pushing and shoving and moving forward and trying to have each child excel to their very limit in sort of these external, even external to the home ways and um, grow in different ways that allow you to sort of come together as a family. It's a, it, but it requires saying, hey, we're, we're going to be pretty limited overall in the things we do, but not for lack of intentionality. Rachie, I want to go back. Um, I want you to think kind of back to those years when we first met and we were in this mother's ministry group, really of, a, of the kind of people that I think listen to our podcast, you know, women who maybe they're taking some time off from work to have their children. Maybe they're going to go back to work. Maybe they won't. But there's there's a sense of of grieving. And I think you and I had so many discussions early on about that that rub, that hard feeling of, boy, we could be doing XYZ. And it's just a hard stage for so many women. What I'd really love is if maybe you can speak into that space a little bit, even offering some advice and thoughts for new mothers. Sure. Well, first of all, I've never ceased to just really, really care about women at that stage, because it was such a time of growth in my own life in in very positive ways overall. But it was hard. I would say now having five kids, I'm, I just feel like life feels so much easier than when I had two and they were real little one and three. And I remember feeling profoundly that (laughs) this was going to be the rest of my life and just how consuming it was and, and sort of being in, um, continual shock at that. (laughs) And, and, and (laughs) at, at times, just struggling with begrudging the, the, the limits of my own life because I was caring for them. Uh, and so I just really resonate with women who are 
uh, wrestling through it. And I think it's, uh, I think most women are wrestle through it in a way that they desire to live well and do well and, and they love their children, but it doesn't, it doesn't make it simple. Of course, with the perspective of time, my youngest is now seven. I, I am so sorry to sound so cliche because I, I honestly hate it that I do. But it is crazy how when Phoebe, my youngest, turned two, I started like life just started to go faster in terms of their growth. And it just felt like everything that it was sped up. And I, I guess I just feel like it does go pretty fast at the end of the day. It moves along um, quicker than you think. And I want to say this. I, I think that the early years, it's hard to, it's almost, it's impossible to overestimate the value of what you um, listeners are, are doing, pouring into your little ones. And neuroscience is only confirming this at every turn, even from the moment a baby is born, they're seeking eyes that are looking for them. I mean, it's actually true. And that only continues as they, as they grow and what we know now is that for children uh, who do not receive the tender nurture and presence of a loving parent in a pretty continuous way, really, really, really struggle. And so science is telling us how significant those early days, those early years are. And so all that you are pouring in is so profound. Well, and I think even with what you and Jed are doing in the foster care and the orphan care movement, you are really exposed to a, a range of a range of children, a range of growing up experiences, not just in America, but but otherwise. What? Um, let me transition to that because you've been a foster care mother, adoptive mother. Um, tell us a little bit about what you would want some folks to know who aren't necessarily as immersed in it as you have been. I guess in some ways, I think a lot of times there's a, just a lack of familiarity overall of what the experience is like to um, foster and adopt. And as soon as that becomes familiar, it becomes normalized and it becomes not scary. And so what's wonderful about that is that there are so many churches and communities that are becoming engaged in foster care and adoption. And that means that for those um bodies of believers and for those for those communities, uh, they're encountering getting to know little ones who are so uh, precious and then it's in the context of a family. And, and I think that spurs others to do the same because they see that it's not actually something to be afraid of and they it, it puts a, a, a face there. I mean, I, foster care probably sounds very, very foreign to many listeners, although I imagine some of your listeners might have um, considered it or done it. But um, it was actually a really hard decision for me to do. We had already uh, adopted our daughter, Eden, and that was many years before. But uh, I think just engaging the foster care system and all of it just looked, felt very intimidating to me. And um, I say intimidating, meaning I just was aware of how time consuming it would be. And I was kind of ready to move along in parenting anyway. And um, we, I, 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 it was, it was a spiritual journey for me, I would say something that um, the Lord was, was stirring in my heart. And when I said yes and turned my, set my mind in that direction and we became licensed foster parents, it was actually the very day 
that uh, we became officially licensed that they said, and we have a little one ready for you if you're willing. And so we brought little Louie into our home. He was a, a little preemie baby and he was just teeny tiny at a very screeching sort of cry and we just adored him. And our church came alongside us and really, really welcomed him with us, which was a sweet little side note. But that's how significant a church community can be uh, for a family and uh, as, they, as they pursue foster care and adoption. And we got to have him for eight months. And I will just say it was very sweet for our family. And in some ways, it was, it was similarly but more transformative for our family as traveling to another country. It was um, a beautiful thing that we were able to do together. And my littlest Phoebe, I guess she was four at the time, was just a little mother to Louie. And she would climb in his crib and feed him his bottle and sing to him and just attend to him constantly. And um, so when he had to leave, because his beautiful mother had worked very, very hard to make different choices and had succeeded. We were so delighted for her, but it was hard. And my daughter, Phoebe, for months afterward, when um, ever she, you know, stubbed a toe or had a bad moment, would say, I want Louie, and would just burst into tears. And so it wasn't easy, of course, but that's how it is, right? The, you know, the beautiful, the beautiful adventure that we got to go on uh, also was, was costly. Rachie, you know, we talk a lot. I'm going to transition to a, a different idea that you and I have talked about a lot on the phone over the years. We talk a lot about women and the roles and challenges for women on our podcast this is something I know you've given a lot of thought to. What are your thoughts now on feminism, on modern life for women, maybe how that's developed a little bit? And I guess even what are some, what, what is your best advice for women? Sure. Oh, of course. No easy questions from Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, no. Um, well, actually, of course, this is a topic that maybe more than any other you and I have tackled together, huh, Rachel? Absolutely. Yeah. And it's been um, an area of personal growth for both of us. And then I think it became an interest area for us as well over the years. And it still is. Although for me and for you, I think it's changed forms a great deal. I know it has significantly for me. Um, In brief, I would just say, um, for reasons I won't go into, I, as a young adult and, and then married woman, I really increasingly came to just feel like women were just terribly wronged by men. And I felt that on a broad scale and on a personal scale, and it had effects on the way that I perceived situations that happened in my life, the way that I perceived um, and, and dealt with aspects of my own marriage. And I, I think I just wrestled a lot and I wrestled with, with scripture and um, how do we, how do we understand um, women and our, our, who we are in light of, of the scripture and wanting to um, follow the Lord and 
but also struggling with those things. And so it was kind of central in a way. And then having two daughters, right, well, three daughters right in a row, that I think upped the ante for me in a way. And I, I'll just say that I'm kind of going to jump to where I'm at. I feel like, to be honest, the Lord has just done wonderful work in my heart. And if I had to point to the main thing, it would be Jesus Christ himself. And Jesus was a man of submission. He submitted himself to his heavenly father and he submitted himself to just about every person that came in his midst, uh, left and right from his mother who wanted some, some water turned to wine to the person who, you know, bumped up against him and grabbed the end of his, his, um, clothing to, um, you know, heal me and, um, forgive me and all of these requests, Jesus at every turn feed us. He responded and bent toward the individual who was, uh, dressing him and that the nature of such a responsive God it was profound for me. And I, I can't um, I can't overstate how much it basically challenged me to think, as a woman, does this matter for me? It became very personal. I think I had gone from um, kind of wanting to <laughs> change the world and change all the systems of the world and our country and um, uh, and just really sort of had my fists in the air, I would say, was my attitude to basically having to confront the question of if this is the man that I want to follow, does it matter for me? Mm. And does it shape who I am as a woman? And of course, as if I were a man as a man, but as a woman, does it matter that this is my model? And I think at the end of the day, I had to say, yes, it absolutely does. And I, it, it, kind of ushered me into this whole journey of exploring what does it mean to live in an open-handed way? So sort of in my mind, the visual is fists in the air was sort of, I kind of feel like that was the visual for how I engaged a lot of life. I wasn't so angry. I was just kind of like ready to respond and defend and critique and whatnot. And to an attitude of having my hands open, open to receive the blessings and the gifts of a gracious and generous father, heavenly father, as well as to receive the needs and the desires and the asks, the requests of, of others and to bend toward them. And I think in a very immediate sense, it just began to change and shape the way I thought about um, what it meant to be a woman, what it means to be in relationship with other human beings. And I think it just felt so much richer and solid and more sturdy than all that I had been offered, in essence, by women in general in in kind of the, the, our, our feminist response to some of the problems of the world. Now, I'm, I'm really generalizing and summarizing here, but I think it became a, a personal encounter. And I actually think about this a lot as a mom of four daughters. 
because I just know they're going to be encountering throughout their life so many messages that basically tell them to look out for themselves and um, make sure no one gets in the way of their ambitions and plans. And while I think there's certainly value in those messages, it's kind of a limited message in a way because it just is leaving out this invitation to a noble and sacrificial life alongside um, pursuing dreams and um, expressing our gifts. And um, in that sense, I just feel like we're doing a real disservice to our daughters when our messages become so small. I want to just dig it. This is where I'm needing your advice and I'm asking for your advice. When you feel, not even just as a woman, but as a person, when you feel like you're experiencing injustice or you see injustice and your anger levels start to rise, what does that practically look like to have open hands to try to emulate Jesus, but then also try to stand up and fight injustice? Yeah, and that's such a great question. And obviously, if you bother to read through the Gospels, the last thing you're going to think of Jesus as is a pushover by any means. And he certainly was a man self-possessed, meaning he controlled and had possession of himself and his emotions. And uh, I will say, generally speaking, that uh, neuroscience is has uncovered and is un- continuing to uncover how significant um, the regulation of your emotions is for, your, for well-being and mental illness is so linked to the dysregulation of emotions. And I, I, I uh, sadly, American culture wants to put the blame continuously on external features of our lives. And while all of that uh, may be true, the only way that change is going to happen and that uh, our, our well-being is going to change and uh, is, is actually from the inside. And even personal injustices. I think managing your own emotions through personal injustice Mm -hmm. is the challenge. That's so hard. It's so hard. And I think a lot of the people listening are probably going through something. You know, I think it it goes from a macro level of injustice in the world down to the very personal micro level of dealing with people that you work with, you live with, whatever, where you have to manage your, um, you have to manage yourself, even in the midst of actual real things that you're dealing with. And how do right. you do that productively? You know, you, you can either have your fist in the air and you're angry, or sometimes you can be a doormat. Yeah. How do you regulate yourself for well-being sake? And how do you be a productive person who, you know, is emulating Jesus? Well, I think it is attention. Yielding to another's wishes or needs does mean laying down ourselves in some way that at times may be far from fair by any logical worldly measure. And it may mean, I think, that we experience injustice, someone acting in an unjust way toward us. But not only does Christ say yes to being treated unjustly, injustice that actually cost him his life, but he also invites us to choose the same, to in some small way turn the other cheek or walk that extra mile. I like to think of it as invitations to micro-justice, and micro mercy. Um, I, I like the Im- actually the imagery of the Good Samaritan, him stopping and bringing healing where there's been injustice. And I think um, 
the work of bringing justice is good work. It's God's work. And it needs to happen at the level of cultural change, system changes. But I would say also it must happen at the level of family and in smaller spaces, in the immediacy of the home, um, a husband and wife, a mother to a daughter and vice versa, a daughter to a mother and so on. And um, that it begins, as I see it, with an open hand to extend mercy, to act justly ourselves, and to at times take upon ourselves freely what we don't deserve. And that's hard to swallow. It doesn't sound easy to our Western modern ears, but I believe it is the way of justice. I think at the end of the day, even the the most great uh, movements, the most great um, efforts for justice, think of Martin Luther King Jr. and others, have been movements that have uh, acknowledged the wrongs in the world and yet have taken an approach that is not like we were talking about having your fists in the air. In other words, um, taking some of the knocks and basically being willing to absorb some of the wrong of the world. And so this is obviously very counter-cultural and uh, it's, it's not straightforward and it's not, it's not easy by any means. And I'm not advocating um, just re- being a recipient of abuse. And that has to be said. That's very important. But at the same time, I think the core messages that we're offering most of the time and that we're receiving are messages that really emphasize fighting back and taking a stance against others. And instead of viewing others as our our sisters and our brothers and viewing, I, I would say as women, viewing men even the worst of sinners, ultimately, as those who are our sons and our brothers and our fathers. And I just think there's such a severing that happens uh, with the mindset that continually insists on fighting. You know what? When you first started to answer the question, I thought, oh, where's she going with this? Because... (laughs) So many times as Christians where, you know, there's this thought that we're called upon to be doormats. We're called upon to just take and take and take and never give back. And that's just not true. And I love that you said there are injustices of the world in the world because there absolutely are. Um, and, and there's things that need to be addressed directly with HR, with with um with somebody that's abusing you, you shouldn't stay in an abusive relationship. There's issues that need to be addressed in the courts and the criminal courts and the civil courts. There's, you know, there are issues that need addressing in a very real way that what you're getting to is how do you deal with that as an internal individual matter? I, that's what I heard. And I think that is so incredibly important for our community because that's why they tune into the show. They are wondering how do I deal with this question? How can I enrich my mind a little bit by learning something new? They, they're not trying, well, some of them are trying to change the world. Maybe I'm, I don't want to, whatever. They're, some of us are trying to change the world. But, but at least in some respect, they are trying to be the best version of themselves. We say that a lot on our show. And I love that you got to that, you really got to that is it, it really starts, the, the alpha and the omega is 
what 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 is going on in your internal life spiritually morally ethically what are your thoughts and i i just really appreciate you bringing that to bear because the world doesn't do that the world wants us to stick our fist in the air all the time and um have a fight and you know there's an abundance of things that aren't solved that way yeah and I really do feel like, again, trying to tie it back into what we're uncovering in science, I, I just, I, I'm such a beginner in this space. I, I want to say that because I'm, I'm in the process of pursuing a master's degree, but I just finished a course on mindfulness and it's an, it's an, it's an interesting way to study the brain because it's basically saying if you practice certain things, if you think certain ways, uh, you will your, your brain will change and will, you will benefit your, you can benefit or harm your body by the way you think in essence, which is incredible. And so it's just one way of exploring that. But what they've found is that it's, it's, it's profound. And so your ability to experience feelings of compassion, for instance, can be shaped by you taking the time to intentionally express compassionate thoughts towards others. And I guess I just feel like this is so underexplored overall in terms of how significant it can be to allow it, the change to come from inside an individual. Rachie, I want to end with one, I guess, practical, we like to give practical takeaways. And so let me just paint a scenario. Somebody out there is, they're mad. They're dealing with feelings of anger, strong emotions. They want to lash out. What would you recommend about mindfulness that they do to be the best version of themselves and, and, and regulate that? I do feel like there's just so uh, much evidence. Uh, and again, this is still an area that needs a lot more study and exploration. But that that there's hope that the mind can change the brain can change through our thinking and through our habits of thought and um, this is not a new idea it just so happens that we're beginning to see evidence for it in neuroscience but the idea that our thinking uh, it affects our choices affects what become habits that eventually become aspects of who we are is not a new idea and it's wonderfully empowering to know, though, that this can actually happen for each of us and that we have the ability to uh, to change and to actually become different people than we were before through our thinking. And most of the time at the beginning of a process like that, if you are someone who's been struggling with anger or any other sort of um, um, emotional expression or um, train of thought or ruminating or depression or anxiety, it's very, very, very hard to turn the tide. Um, and it doesn't happen all at once. And the, and the um, kind of seeing the change, can it can be slow, but it's possible. And that's such a hopeful message. Rachie, I, I, my two co-hosts here have been rubbing off on me. I'm a fiction reader, and I, I don't normally read a lot of, I don't, I, I've never read a neuroscience book before, but, 
but I got one, Rachel <gasps> Breyers. I got one. You're dead. I did. It's called Late Bloomers, The Power of Patience in a World Obsessed with Early Achievement by Rich Carlgard. And um, he's a really prominent editor of Forbes magazine. And all these things that you're saying today, he interviewed, he's not a neuroscientist, but he interviewed all these neuroscientists and all these things that you've been saying today. So are just re- being reinforced right now with this reading that you can change and you, and, and change sometimes doesn't come in your twenties or in your teens and you don't peek out and, you know, take your company public when you're 22 years old, but you, I love what you're, it, it's just such a message of hope for people that are along in their careers and, and they think, I, I guess I'm just stuck here. I'm not, but you can't, it, things can be different. You can change your internal direction. Absolutely. And I think increasingly we'll be seeing interventions that focus on that. It's just hard because it takes a long time. And so I think a lot of times people give up before they start to really enjoy the fruit of their efforts. Rachel, we can't thank you enough for joining us on our podcast. This has been extremely helpful. And I want to issue just a challenge to each of us out there. This is a challenge to myself. Sometime this week, take a minute and maybe think about um, an, an emotion you have or a direction that your mind is going often that you want to change. Maybe just journal that and think about what Rachel shared with us and how you can make even a little step toward change to really improve yourself, but also to improve the lives of other people. Rachie, thank you so much. This is Bell Curve Podcast. You can find us on all the socials at Bell. Hmm, what is it? Bell Curve Pod? <laughs> sometimes, Bell Curve Pod. <laughs> sometimes I forget. Um, and Rachie, is there any way for people to connect with you if they want to learn more or even with CAFO, the Christian Alliance for Orphans? Sure. Yeah. I'll just give my email address. It's rachel.medifend at gmail.com. I'm not a huge social media user at the moment. Uh, That's a whole nother discussion, but um, I welcome an email. Wonderful. Okay. We'll see you all next week. Thank you. Bye-bye.